Uh, we're moving into the third week of our sermon series, Rediscovering Joy Through the Book of Philippians. And uh, in the series, we're going to be looking at the second part of the first chapter of the book. It's going to come up for us on screen, and I've requested Daph to read it out for us. Uh, she, she's going to help us uh, in reading the passage. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Dad. There is power when God's word is read out um, to his people. Um, there is great power. You cannot sense it immediately. You cannot realize it immediately. Uh, but I really believe that as God's word was spread out over us, the power of God's word is being infused into our lives. Uh, look at verse 18, which I think is, is, is the real nub of the passage that we read. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Writes the man was chained unfairly for many, many, many years, the Apostle Paul. There is a certain defiance of circumstances in the joy that the Apostle Paul is experiencing in this passage. Paul's joy is not 
because of circumstances, false joy is despite circumstances. Unjustly imprisoned, we don't really expect people to be joyful in the circumstances that Paul was enduring. And yet, he was full of joy. This is the defiance of joy. True gospel joy can defy circumstances around us. We all need to grow in this kind of defiant joy. What a blessing it would be. Think about it. Consider it for a moment. What a blessing it would be if we can all learn how to be defiant in our joy, even as life throws all its challenges at us. That's what I want to focus on this morning from this passage, the defiance of joy. I'd like to draw three things out for us from the portion of scripture that we just read. First, what happened to Paul? Second, how did Paul respond to this? And third, how did Paul manage such a joyful response in such difficult circumstances? What happened to Paul? How did Paul respond? And how did Paul manage such a joyful response in such difficult circumstances? Let's look at the first thing. What happened to Paul? Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's how Paul opens this passage. He begins by reminding the Philippian church and us what had happened to him. So what exactly happened to Paul? What exactly had, had happened to him that he's reminding us? It is a very long answer. In fact, the answer includes a whole set of circumstances starting in the books of, book of Acts chapter 16 and extending all the way to the book of Acts chapter 28. All of these circumstances, instant, incidents happened just before Paul wrote these words to the church at Philippi. And I really encourage us to go back after today to, to, to read this portion. And if you read Acts 16 to 28, you'll get a sense of what Paul has endured before he wrote this letter to the Philippines. But I'm going to quickly recap it for us now. We saw how Paul planted the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And if you remember, Philippi was the first, was a very special place for Paul because it was the first time he was thrown into jail for preaching Christ Jesus. He was also stripped and beaten with rods. From Philippi, Paul traveled uh, to many cities, successfully and, and fruitfully preaching Christ Jesus and planting churches and guiding hundreds of people to come to faith in Jesus. He traveled to Thessalonica. He traveled through Beria. He went to Athens and then to Corinth and finally to Ephesus and then back to Jerusalem. He faced intense persecution in all of these places. There were riots in some of these cities and there were mobs that wanted to lynch him. And finally, when he came back to Jerusalem, there was a mob that wanted to kill him, and, and, and the Roman soldiers had to intervene and arrest Paul. This happened in Acts chapter 21. 
Jews in Jerusalem do not want him alive. So they later tried to assassinate Paul when he was in Roman custody. And then from Acts chapter 23, we see how Paul uh, was in prison. Um, first in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea, and then eventually in Rome. First, he was in the custody of uh, Governor Felix, not our Felix, Governor Felix. Uh, then he was in the custody of Governor Festus, and then he was in the custody of King Agrippa. And all this for more than two years. He is, there was never a charge sheet, charge sheet that was filed on him. He never got a fair trial. All of these men heard him, and none of them gave Paul a fair, fair trial. And finally, Paul appealed to Caesar. That's like appealing to the Supreme Court in our context. And he was sent to Rome. And on his way to Rome, he suffered a shipwreck. And when he survived the shipwreck and made it to shore, he was bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake, and, and miraculously escaped unharmed. After all these ordeals, he finally landed in Rome as a prisoner in chains. It is from this imprisonment that Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church. So in verse 12, when Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me, I want you to know what has happened to Paul. This is what had happened to Paul. Mobs, lynchings, arrests, beatings, imprisonment, shipwrecks, snake bites, he's endured it all. And now, imagine this, now as he is actually sitting in a prison in Rome and writing this letter, these very words, Paul would have been chained to a Roman Praetorian guard. Praetorian guard is, is like the super elite of the armed forces of the, of the Roman Empire. You see, Paul was by now a high security prisoner. This meant that he had to be chained to a tough and an elite Roman soldier 24 hours a day, even when he went to the bathroom, even when he slept. The soldiers, of course, got ships, you know, eight-hour ships. I don't know how many ships there were. But Paul never got a respite. So when he's sitting and writing this letter to the Philippian church, encouraging them to be joyful, Paul is joyful with, with this really big Roman soldier in, in, in army chained. Visualize that. Imagine the shame, the insult, and the utter lack of freedom in being chained to another person 24 by 7 for a crime for which no charge sheet had been filed or no court had convicted. And to top it all, even as he was imprisoned in Rome, some Christians, Christians, who were envious and jealous of Paul, had tried to usurp his place when he was in prison, and a few of them was, were preaching Christ out of spite for Paul, just to undermine Paul. And in whatever they did, they were wanting to afflict Paul even more when he was in prison. We read that in verses 15 to 17. Paul endured all of this and more and we think our lives are hard 
Paul endured so much, but we grumble and complain for so little. Let me help us see and, and really imagine and hopefully even feel a little bit of what Paul was enduring in the context of our lives. Paul, at this time, when this happened, was undoubtedly the most successful, the most fruitful Christian leader in the early church. You know, he was, God was using him far more than even, uh, far more visibly at least, even than the 12 original disciples of Jesus. He had gone to more cities than anyone, any other Christian leader. He had planted more churches than any other Christian leader. He had led more people to Christ than any other Christian leader. And incredible things were happening. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs that had touched his skin, handkerchiefs that had touched the skin of Paul were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits left out of left them, came out of them. This is Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. Paul, think about this. Paul was at the absolute peak of his career when he was benched. He was at the absolute peak of his career when he was imprisoned and his entire career collapsed. Imagine you're at the peak of your career and everything is just going so well. Then suddenly, one day you're fired and that too for no fault of yours, for a mistake that you had not committed. Imagine the emotions Paul would have gone through. How much we gripped at the slightest inconvenience. And here, the ground has been just pulled out from under Paul's feet. He is in a default. A promising career cut short, unfairly, unjustly. This is what happened to Paul. So when Paul writes in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. I want you to understand what he has gone through. That's the first thing I want you to draw for us from the passage. Second thing I want to invite us to look at is how did Paul respond to this? How did he respond to this? Paul's response to all that he's endured is captured in one verse, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. That is Paul's response to everything that has happened. Paul is rejoicing despite so much trouble, so much pain, so much hardship, so much persecution. When you think about it, it is incredible. This is the defiance of gospel joy. True gospel joy can rise above every hardship in Paul's life, in your life, and in mine. Let me quickly walk you through a few experiences 
uh, of this defiant joy that that Paul walked through in this in this place in his life. First, Paul is chained twenty four by seven to a Roman guard. Rather than crib, he is celebrating. He is able to share the gospel with the Roman guard. It's so successful that he claims that the entire Praetorian guard had heard the good news of of Jesus. Again, think about this. You know, in the days of in these days of social media and, and media and internet and television, uh, you know, someone crucified rising again from the dead would have been in the headlines everywhere. Everyone would have known. But these Roman Praetorian guards didn't have social media. They would not. They would have heard nothing about Jesus because Jesus died in a in a small town. Jerusalem was a small town in in the height of the Roman Empire. So Paul is actually the first person to tell these Roman guards that there's a man named Jesus who existed. He was the son of God, fully God, fully man, died for our sins, rose again. Think of it. That's the first thing. Second, a few jealous and envious Christians were trying to uh, take advantage of Paul's imprisonment. These were power-hungry people. They were trying to climb the ladder and, and take away the vacancy that Paul has, has left. Not that this vacancy should not be filled, but this vacancy should not be filled by self-seeking men, seeking their own glory than the service of people. Rather than be bitter and discouraged by these people, Paul is joyful at the few good men who, could, who have been emboldened to preach Christ, who is in prison. And third, Paul has been unjustly imprisoned. This is dragged on for years. Years. It, this is a mockery of justice. And yet, in this letter in his chains, Paul is not saying, please pray I will be freed. I have been so wronged. Please send a team of human rights lawyers to fight my case. That's not what Paul is saying. He is more concerned about the faith and well-being of the Philippian church than he is concerned about his release after maybe three, four long years. He was joyful and he was teaching church at Philippi to be joyful. When we began the series, we looked at a few visual illustrations to look at how worldly joy is different from biblical joy. How biblical joy is so much better. And I want to go back to those illustrations for us. And I want to help us remember those. We saw worldly joy is things like career and relationship and money and home bringing joy to us. That's, that's worldly joy. We saw that this is not biblical joy. We saw that godly joy, gospel joy, biblical joy is Christ filling our hearts with joy and us taking the joy of the Lord into our careers, into our relationship, into our finances. But what we are seeing Paul experiencing is the next level of joy. This is, this is a new chart being played out, and I really would like to help us see and, and, and grasp what is happening here. So many things are being thrown at Paul. So many hardships, so many difficulties. He's, he's been to jail. 
He's been shamed and beaten, unfair trial, murder attempt, mob attack, shipwreck, snake bite. So many things are being thrown at Paul, but what is coming out of Paul is joy. What is, what is coming out of Paul is love and concern for others. The thing I would like us to consider is this. All these bad things, unfair things, unjust things are being thrown at Paul, but what's coming out is joy. So what on earth was happening inside of Paul? What is Paul experiencing? What is happening to him that is able to take all of these things that have been thrown at him, crosses it, endure it, and have joy overflow? What is happening here? And how can we have more of that? That's what I want to look at this morning. And that's the third and the last and the most important thing that we need to take away from this passage. How did Paul manage such a joyful response in such difficult circumstances? How did Paul manage such a joyful response in such difficult circumstances. The answer is right here in the middle of the passage that we are looking at. In a really small and simple sentence in verse 21. Verse 21, Paul says, For me, live is Christ. That's it. For me, to live is Christ. Let me, let me, let me unpack this sentence. I mean, this sentence is, is like a 100-ton gospel explosive. So much in this one sentence. For me, to live is Christ. In this one phrase, Paul is inviting us to see how he is defining life. He says, for me, to live is Christ. Christ is my life. Paul is saying Christ is my definition of life. Christ is my meaning of life. Christ is the purpose of my life. Christ is the very reason for my existence. Christ is my life, Paul is saying. This is Paul's definition of life. Paul not only said this, but he also lived this. Let me invite us to see how he lived this. Imagine Paul's life. We, we've walked through this before. I'm going to unpack that a little more. Imagine Paul's life. He was the most successful Christian leader. He was experiencing more success and more fruitfulness in mission than, than anybody else. And in one moment, with his arrest in Jerusalem, everything has been taken away from him. He never got it all back. Never. He, he rotted in prison for many years. He was set free for a brief while, and then he was arrested again, and then executed. From what Paul was enjoying at the peak of his career, what was unfairly, unjustly taken from him, he never, ever got it back. And yet, rotting in prison for all these years, Paul is not crushed. He remains joyful. 
Paul is able to remain joyful because Christ was his life, not his ministry. Ministry and, and planting churches were not his life. Sure, he did all these. Sure, these are all good things to do. Amazing things to do. But all of these were secondary. Christ was his life. When they arrested Paul, they took away his physical ministry, but they could not take away Christ from him. Paul remained joyful because his life was not defined by his ministry or by his career or by his relationships. His life was defined by Christ. So even when all physical ministry was taken away from him, he was still joyful because he never got his joy from his ministry in the first place. He always got his joy from Christ. The secret to Paul's joy is his definition of life. Christ was his life. Not ministry, not career, not stock market investments, not startups, not family, not pleasure, nothing. And because Christ was his life, Paul did not lose his joy even when his ministry was taken away from him. What is your definition of life? Paul says in verse 21, For me, to live is Christ. If I were to open up a sentence and fill in the blank and said, For me, to live is dash. What would you fill that out? Not based on what you think it is, but based on how you and I, we have lived the last six months. For me, to live is dash. Fill that out. Let's be honest. What is the one thing your entire life is based on? What is the one thing that you live for? Is it being successful in your career? Is the one thing that you're living for not being called out or caught short by your boss or by your colleagues? To maintain this image of someone who's efficient? Are you spending all your life just on that? For me, to live is taking care of my children and making sure their future is entirely secure, that they are all well cared for, that they never have any hardship in their life. To me, to live is buying a dream home so I can be comfortable and nice and be secure and enjoy it. Or is it starting a business? Or is it getting into a dream college? Is it getting married? What's the one thing your life is entirely based on? There's got to be something. 
Maybe it's just pleasure. Maybe you want to do, maybe the reason you're working so hard is so that you can enjoy whatever it is that you want to enjoy after you work. Maybe it's being able to party and, and have fun and eat well and drink well and take merry. Is, is that most important thing in your life? Or, or is it the kick of, of investing wisely and investing shrewdly and, and very analytically and then watching the money pile grow and grow? And... Is that what you're living? This one thing is your definition of life. If Christ is your life, circumstances can never take away your joy. But if Christ is not your life, if any one of these things we talked about has become your life, then no circumstance can ever guarantee or bring you true joy. Only when Christ is our life can we experience the joy that defies every difficult circumstances. If Christ is not our life, we cannot, we cannot experience the defiance of gospel job. Tim Keller, a man that I really respect and have learned a lot from, he explains it. This is how he puts it. He puts it. He says, the problem, the core problem, the central problem, the most important problem is not the circumstances of life. The most central problem is our definition of life. What is life for you? As we can see from Paul, if we get our definition of life correct, circumstances cannot shake us too much. Of course, it'll impact us. Of course, we'll experience sorrow no more. But it's not going to crush us. Circumstances can never, ever rob us of true joy if Christ is indeed our life. But if we get our definition of life wrong, something else has become our life. Circumstances can take away our joy in one moment. What is your definition what is the one thing you've been spending all your creative energies on the last six months where have you invested the best of you wholehearted the past six months I don't want to sound harsh. I definitely don't mean to sound harsh. Uh, but I do need to say this. And I'm saying this for myself first before I say this to anyone else. If we do not have at least 20 to 30 minutes every day, spending time communing with Christ joyfully, with delight in his word and in prayer, Christ is not our life. We can't give Christ that much joyfully, wholeheartedly. Christ is not your life. 
No two ways of one. Something else is your life. It's, it's as simple as that. You may be a Christian. You may be a leader in the church. You may even be a pastor. But if I cannot delight in Christ and his word and in prayer and in communing with Christ for at least 20 to 30 bare minimum minutes in my life, Christ is not my life. I cannot claim Christ is my life and, and love him so deeply and so little. Here's the thing. Here's what we have to live with. If Christ is not our life, if we've got some other definition of life, don't expect to be joyful. Don't expect to be joyful. If Christ is not our life, defiant joy will not be part of our lives. So I go back to the question I asked us and I asked myself at the beginning of this series, do I really want to be joyful? Do you really want to be joyful? Does joy matter to you? Is it important to you? And if we really want joy, if joy is really important to us, we must make Christ the very definition of our life. If you really want defiant joy, to be a part of your life, integral part of our lives, we must make Christ the definition of our life. Nothing else than Christ and nothing less than Christ can bring us real joy. But how? I don't think anyone, anyone here on this call does not want this. You all want this. But how? How do I shift loyalties? How do I how do I shift my desires and my affections from other things? And how do I move them to or to put it more graphically, how do I tear away my affections? You know, when you group something, a paper or something together, and you tear it away, it's not easy. It's messy. How do I tear away my affections from things other than Christ? And how do I place it? That's what we need to know. That's, that's where the breakthrough lies. I have just two simple steps. Nothing that we don't know. I really believe the Holy Spirit is going to bring it to bear on our hearts. Two things, two very simple steps. First, own your sin. Own your sin. If this sermon has convicted you in any way, if you've experienced any level of conviction at all in your heart, I beg with you, I, I plead with you, please don't see reality and walk away from it. Please don't see reality and order lunch in 30 minutes from now and get on. Stay. The real. Let us stay in the reality of our sin. Repent. I don't mean don't order lunch. I mean order the best lunch by, by all means. It's a gift from God. We can enjoy it as an act of worship. That's not where I'm going with this. 
own yourself. Do not let your heart bury and conveniently ignore it. I preach this to myself. Repent. Add us together, repent, for not for, for making something other than Christ the center. You see, if you allow these things, whatever it may be, if you allow these things to be your life, you are setting yourself up for a life of sorrow and hardship and dissatisfaction and unfulfillment. We know this already. Don't we already know that these things we are chasing will not bring us lasting joy? We know it. So let us own our sin. Let us face it. Let us acknowledge it. Let us see the harm that it is doing to us and our loved ones. Let us see how much our sin is harming us and how much our sin is grieving the heart of God. That's the first thing. See our sin. Don't let your heart bury us. Don't let your heart walk away from us. That's the first step to shifting our desires away from other affections to Christ. The second step, the first is see your sin. The second step is see his love. Or see love of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Christ, God incarnate, emptied himself. He poured himself out by taking the form of a servant. Being born the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. See his love. See his love. Come, Jesus. Don't run away. Don't hide. Let's not pretend we are too busy for Christ. Let's not pretend there are other things in our lives more important than Christ. Let's not pretend that we can make our lives work apart from devotion. He emptied himself for you. Will you fill your life? Christ emptied himself. Won't you fill your life? Let us pray. Father, I know where I stand, Lord. I know how much I have fallen short 
these past few months of every single sentence that I have preached. And, and I acknowledge, I repent, Lord. Publicly, I repent. I have not lived what I have preached. But it is out of gospel confidence, Lord, that I, I dare to preach such a thing in faith, believing that God wants to, that Lord Jesus, you want to love and forgive and transform us and not condemn us. I preach this out of, out of gospel faith that God is for us and not against us. That God wants us to succeed and be sanctified and not fail and continue in our sin. It is out of this faith, it is out of faith that you did not die for nothing, Lord Jesus. You did not die to save me and let me languish in my sin. You died and rose again from the dead that I might grow and be transformed. So, Lord, we pray. Help us, Lord. Lord, this is, this is the essence of life. Help every one of us here, Lord. Beg you, we pray. Because Christ emptied himself for us. Give us the grace that we would fill our lives with Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.